All right, here we are live with Jessica Sutter. We have a very, very special guest today. I'm very excited for our Live on Leadership. So for those of you who are watching live or watching a recording or listening on our podcast that I don't know, I am Beth Napleton and I am an expert in working with leaders and mission-driven organizations to help them reach their goals. And so because I love thinking about leadership and all its complexities, we do these lives every week to learn about the lessons of leadership from a variety of perspectives. And today's guest is very special. And I think we're going to dig into a really interesting topic, policy change at all levels, um, because Jessica Sutter has many roles and responsibilities now, but one of them is president of the DC State Board of Education, which is wild because when we met, we were history and English teachers, respectively. So <laughs> um, I'm so changed, Beth. <laughs> I was going to say, I actually feel like wrangling eighth graders like you did and like captivating them is actually a very transferable skill to the pol political landscape in DC. So it was actually teaching middle school is great preparation for basically everything turns it out is totally, 100%. <laughs> that's great so we you know just I was trying to think we met in maybe 2005 ish yeah I think it was 2006 maybe I can't remember when the world-class writing project started but I think I think that's right roughly 2006 yes exactly and you were teaching at KIPP DC I was teaching at KIPP Gaston College Prep um, and we had cohorts that we worked with and we got to go on really great school visits and talk about writing and how do you help kids show thinking on pages. And then we would like have like parties that went long into the night playing college drinking games. So it was a really balanced, <laughs> very balanced, work hard, play hard, think very hard, balanced, very fun. Right. Uh, good pieces. But since then you have gone on to do a lot of amazing things. Like, I don't know, earn your doctorate, <laughs> uh, you know, just, just a few things, do some Ironmans. Like that was, that's not on the hobby side. So, you know, what, you know, catch us up on what you've been doing, you know, since your illustrious teaching career. Oh, I love that. Well, I'm so glad to be here with you, Beth. So when I left KIPP, it was to go to graduate school. And I really thought I would go get my master's degree and probably head back to a classroom. But I kind of fell into academia, ended up sticking around for a PhD program, um, spent some time as an education pioneer working at a state at our state education agency in DC oh, on a project and ended up getting a job there. And so suddenly grad school went to this part-time thing I did while I worked full-time for DC government. I worked at our state education agency. I worked in the mayor's office, which was a whole experience of what local mm -hmm. politics is like, what actually happens at the executive level in working with communities around education. Mm -hmm. And then my, my PhD advisor said to me, you know, if you keep doing this, you're never going to finish. So maybe you want to think about finishing. Um, and that was wise advice. It really was. So I went back to school full time, but had this mortgage to pay. So I took up consulting um, and I did it in fairly typical Jess fashion, which is I'm sure I could just figure this out. So I threw out an email to everybody I'd ever met and worked with and picked up some very interesting projects along the way, including one that is probably one of the hardest and most important jobs I had over the past 10 years and formed the basis for my dissertation. Mm -hmm. I worked with our charter school authorizer in DC, the public charter school board mm -hmm. on school closures. What happens when a charter school does not perform to expectations and is required to close? And frankly, how do you put together all the pieces that support the people affected by the closure? How do you support the staff of the school? How do you support families and enrolling in new places? So I did that work for six years and I wrote my dissertation about charter school closures and restarts in Washington, DC. Thought I'd finish the PhD and go back to a full-time job. 
and instead got asked, hey, have you ever thought about running for office? <laughs> you need to run for the State Board of Education in Ward 6. At the time, it wasn't clear if the incumbent was going to run again. Um, he ended up running again. We had a competitive race. And it was a really interesting experience in learning how to run for office and how to connect with community members, um, really sort of in a cold calling fashion. What is it like to knock on a door and introduce yourself to someone and say, would you consider giving me a pretty powerful thing, your vote? Mm -hmm. um, and so three and a half years ago, I got elected to the State Board of Education, have served as a committee member in a lot of ways, and this year ran for the presidency and was really honored that I convinced four of my colleagues to sign on and vote for me, which gave me my majority vote and put me in my seat. So for this year, I get to work with our vice president and coordinate with all the nine members of the board, plus our four student representatives, to set an agenda, talk about what matters for kids and educators in the city, and then help craft a plan to get it done. Not unlike what my consulting life is like. Right, Most of my right. consulting life is strategic planning. Turns out leading a board is also a lot of strategic planning. Exactly, right? All these skills that kind of overlap and where do they come together? And I just think it's so, it just makes, I mean, I am not a DC resident. I wish I would, was in many ways because I could vote for you. But to just think like how important it is to have people in positions who have been in the classroom and who have been in, in schools and who understand how they work and understand the complexities, right? Um, that are inherent in any organization and particularly, you know, at this particular, we thought it was complicated before. And then we added a global pandemic in just to make it a little bit more interesting. So <laughs> never a dull moment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, let's indulge for just a second and talk about that 2006-ish time. We're in the writing project. It was Kip's first ever teacher-led professional development. And I was able to co-chair it with Elliot Whitney from Kip Houston. We had a great time getting our, I mean, really, it just felt like so much fun, like get our friends together and talk about writing. And we visited all these schools and it was it was fascinating. Um, when you look back and think about your leadership journey, what did you really take from that point in time? What were you really like learning and figuring out back in that day? Which is, <laughs> I was going to say almost twenty years ago, and I was like, that's not right. Oh, oh, it is. But yeah, but yeah, it's 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 right. Um, so I was thinking a lot about this, and I, I think it goes back to the point you made when we first started our chat today, which is teaching middle school is incredibly good preparation for leadership in any way. So. At the time, I was teaching eighth grade social studies in an eighth grade writing class. We had broken up our eighth graders into smaller writing groups um, so that different teachers and administrators each had small groups of students where they, they could dig in really and get uh, more into the art of writing. Mm -hmm. One of the things that came up for me then is part of leading and part of working with middle school students is setting the conditions for learning. What are, what are you doing in terms of setting up systems? processes, expectations, schedules? How do you sort of lay the groundwork to say, okay, here's the conditions within which we're working. Mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. how do you build the relationships that make people come along with you to own, own into, you know, buy into and own those systems as something they're willing to take part in? Mm -hmm. And then how do you manage people's experiences within that system using those relationships to provide support where it's needed, to let people go a little bit when they need to go a little bit and, and explore on their own, maybe even to, to fail a little bit so that they come mm -hmm. back with questions, better questions, better learnings. I often talk to um, folks who are thinking about teaching and they're like, well, what is it like to manage a classroom of middle schoolers? I'm like, you know, it's not so much command and control. Middle schoolers would rebel immediately against that. It's setting these conditions, providing support, setting expectations, which is not unlike working with adults. You yes. can't command and control adults. That's not how things work. 
And no one likes the the boss that does that. So right. how do you think about that? So that that's on my mind is like, that was a lot of what we were doing at the time. Other thing we were doing, to your point, is this was teacher-led professional development. This was also letting us go try some things mm-hmm. where we might fail a little bit, where we might have to readjust and change course, where we mm-hmm. might have to ask for more support or more leeway to do what we wanted to do. But it was trusting that the people closest to the work mm-hmm. had a sense of what they needed to better do the work and how they might want to get that information. For us, um, I thought one of the more powerful pieces of what we did with the writing project was we visited each other's schools to see those schools in action. We read each other's students' writing to see the work products that came out of those environments. But then we went to see schools that were not like ours at all. Wildly right? right. Wealthy right. suburban schools, which is pretty much the opposite of almost every KIPP um, experience that we were all you know, teaching and part of, to say, what's different? And mm-hmm. I thought... Still, almost 20 years later, one of the more profound takeaways was how much freedom and flexibility students in some of these more affluent schools had, not just in their learning environments, but like in the hallways, the 100 different decisions they made in their seven minute passing period, and how that informed the kind of critical thinking and strategy that they might employ in any other phase of their life. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot Mm -hmm. about that too, like as, as a leader in any way. How do you set some conditions, but how do you not lock it all down so tight that Mm -hmm. people don't have the freedom and flexibility to dream a little bit, to make some mistakes that help them learn, to ask better questions, um, to find their own paths forward? Mm -hmm. That's incredibly eloquent. And and I think that there's so much thinking about, right, just like drawing clear boundaries and where can you make the decision and where can you not? And that's true for your eighth graders. That's true for committee members on an executive board, right? I mean, it just is clarity in, in those pieces. And I think that I think a lot about those visits to the, you know, like boarding schools and affluent schools. And then the other thing I love that we did was we followed a student for the day and shadowed them. Do you remember? Yes, I, I do. I recommend this to every leader I work with. And it feels so hard to take a day, but even if you can take half a day or two hours and just like shadow a student and what is their experience like, it's mind blowing. Um, and I think you always come out of it with a ton of really juicy ideas about just making the experience more engaging and meaningful for kids. And I think really what we got to with writing and we came to very quickly was that, you know, it really in some ways was about writing, but in a lot of ways it was about kind of critical thinking and critical thinking on paper and what's your argument and how do you advance it and these skills. And the good news is you don't need a pencil in your hand to practice any of that. It can be in the hallway, right? Um, so yeah, um, excellent. What about a time, is there something that used to work for you in leadership that kind of doesn't quite work anymore? Something that you've had to maybe served you before, but no longer does. So, you know, I, I was thinking about this question preparing for the chat. And I think I want to to frame it a little differently, which is the thing I thought would be true about leadership that as it turns out, isn't the way I thought it would be. Hmm. So you get your PhD, you become an expert, right? That's the whole point of having this doctorate is to say like, I am an expert in a thing. Um, and my thing for better or for worse is is charter school closures, that how things hmm. go wrong in governance of this particular school model. Um, I, I really thought that once you become an expert in a thing, that you would have a lot to share. You would know a lot about a thing and it would be your job to help impart that knowledge. As it turns out, when you get to the seat of expert on a thing, you actually learn a lot more by listening twice as much Mm. as you speak. Um, So I have some knowledge on 
this area of expertise I have. My degrees in education policy, my focus is on charter schools, specifically around governance and how things can go wrong. But it's also at a point in time. I wrote this dissertation 2016 to 2018. I got the PhD in 2018. We're looking now at four years plus a global pandemic, plus a racial reckoning, plus a whole a whole uh, host of things that have changed in that time. Mm-hmm. If I were to simply say, well, I'm the expert, I've got things to share, mm-hmm. I would miss a lot of the learnings that happen for the folks on the ground in seats in those schools, in those governance places. So I think a thing that has become clear to me as a leader is that a lot of my job is not to do a thing, but to listen. To listen to, uh, in my role on the state board, to listen to my colleagues about what work matters, and then Mm -hmm. to figure out how we, as a board with a small but dedicated staff, try to do as much of that work as possible. Mm -hmm. It's not about me getting my stuff done. It's about how do I make this possible for us to get our stuff done. Mm. In consulting roles, when I work with executive directors and boards on strategic planning, a lot of the work is listening asking a couple questions and then sitting back and recording it all, then compiling it and saying, here's what I heard from mm-hmm. hours of you talking to me. This is what I heard. And it's funny because they're, the response is often, that's so insightful. It's like, mm-hmm. you said it. That was you. you. Yeah. It. My yeah. job was yeah. to, to be the place to listen and to try to make sense of all the words that came at me in a way that I can hand back to you. But that work there, my expertise is not given in the form of, well, here's what I know, but it's in, here's what I've heard. Here's what you've Mm. told me. Here's how I'm making sense of all the things uh, that that you shared that I think might matter to you. So Mm. that, that I think is, is a real big insight um, for me is how much of leading is listening and then sharing back what you've heard. Mm. That is, that's really wise. Um, That really that really resonates. Um, yeah. And I think also translatable back to middle school. You also didn't mention your third responsibility, which is like, you also teach graduate students. Like, I'm also so glad that you're still teaching, having seen you as a skilled teacher. So in fact, yes. It's a fascinating thing to teach graduate students because again, middle school was great preparation for it. Um, (laughs) I have a number of friends who work in higher ed now and Several of them were middle school teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, one was actually my adjoining classroom mate at KIPP DC, Dr. Kendra Seaman, who's now a cognitive psychology professor. <laughs> and we talk all the time about how, how the skills we honed as a classroom teacher in middle school are not available for a lot of our students in higher ed settings because they don't have professors who've ever been classroom teachers. So they don't have the like, here's what I heard you say, and I want to clarify this with you, which is something you do all the time with adolescents because they don't have the perfect words to describe a thing, but often they have deeply profound wonderings or uh, conceptual understandings of a piece of literature or of a historical event. They might not say it immediately in the way that an adult's going to go like, wow, that's profound. But when you ask them some questions and you say like, you know, I heard a piece of that in there. Can you tell me more? As it turns out, the same thing is really important for grownups. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I heard you say a thing. I think there's more there. Do you want to say more about that? And that's my favorite part of working with graduate students. Most of my students are current teachers or former classroom teachers who were thinking about what impact they could have if they stepped into a policy role. They mm-hmm. often are still learning 
about the work that policy is and the opportunities that exist in the policy making realm, the policy analysis realm. But I don't think uh, I don't think they all realize how important what they do in their classrooms every day mm. is going to be if they step into one of those roles. So I feel like it's part of my job to help them translate it. It's interesting too, right? Because I think that that often, I think many conversations teachers have, right? About if this policy were different, this were there. And then I think we've talked about, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, there's just a lot of moving pieces. And it's really, you know, like in my classroom, if I want this want to change tomorrow, I can. And as a principal even, tomorrow's hard, but next week is possible, right? Next month, next year. And when you're talking about a city and a system, the pace of change really slows. And so it's been interesting to think about that. So I know that you probably can't say your favorite students because you have so many favorite students, but my favorite student of yours is certainly Shauna Mayo, who was one of my students in seventh grade, probably at the exact same time we were honestly doing the writing project, um, and who now runs a school that is the first alumni leader of the school and uh, also is in your program. So shout out yeah. to Yeah. And, and what, what a wonderful small world it is to realize that sometimes it feels like everything is big and overwhelming. And then you make a connection like that. And you realize that at the core, we're actually a whole lot closer together. Yes. Yes. I mean, honestly, there's, I mean, I have no memory of the details of the 2006, seven period, but like you guys observed me teaching. And if I was teaching seventh grade, there was like a one out of three chance she was in that class. Right. And if she wasn't in that class, she was in the cafeteria or changing the hallways. And it's just, it's neat to think about like, Oh, wow. And who would have guessed that this many years forward? And it makes me excited because like, well, what's going to be true in 16 more years, right? Totally. Um, we'll, we'll be replaced as consultants by our former students. And I don't know, hopefully be like sipping my ties on a beach somewhere or something. Yeah. <laughs> we'll fix all the problems. Put, put that out in the universe so that that happens. Exactly. Exactly. I actually, I really prefer like a margarita, to be honest. So <laughs> let me be clear in my vision. <laughs> I'm a pina colada girl myself. So it's fair. I could do a pina colada. I could do a pina colada. I see that in a beach setting. So yes, exactly. Solve. We'll have solved all the problems of the universe. Um, so tell me about a time, you know, I think sometimes we learn leadership lessons over time, repetitively, you know, quietly. And sometimes we have these moments that are just burned into our brains and you just have learned a lesson in a really profound smack you in the face kind of way. Tell us about one of those smack you in the face leadership lessons. Yeah. So this one isn't, isn't super sexy, but I think it's a, a helpful reminder um, for folks who find themselves in the same boat I did. So mm -hmm. when I ran for the state board, one of the things I thought about was the DC social studies standards. Told you it wasn't going to be sexy. Um, when <laughs> I started in democracy and very relevant to this day and even more so since then. So yeah, very relevant. <laughs> when I started teaching in DC um, in 2006, DC revised its social studies standards and I was super excited to be teaching them in my classroom at KIPP DC. When I ran for the board in 2018, they were still teaching the standards from 2006. Okay, so 12 years have gone by yeah. and immense changes happened. I believe the rollout of Common Core in the interim. <laughs> the rollout of Common Core, the election of the first black president in yeah. a city of majority black students, <laughs> uh, marriage equality becoming the law of the land, the enormity of change that had happened over those 12 years and DC students' standards, what their teachers were expected to teach them had not changed. Now, some schools had changed curriculum, but this document on the books that said, this is what teachers are supposed to be able to teach. Mm -hmm. This is what students are supposed to know and be able to do. 
had not changed. So I said, this is what I want to do. I got four-year term on the board. I want to do this. I want to rewrite the social studies standards. I assumed there was a process for that. And I would have to come in and there was no process for that. There was literally nothing on the books in DC about how do you update state standards? How often are they required to be updated? Mm. Who is to be involved in that process? On what timeline does it happen? And I literally, I sat there with our staff and went, you're kidding. You mean, you mean to tell me that no one has thought about this before? And they said, yeah, there's no system for that. So we made it up. So what occurred to me in that moment is two things. One, people are making up a lot. People in leadership are making up a lot because mm -hmm. they're facing things that maybe the public assumes or people assume, well, surely there's a, there's a way that that's done. Yes. And often I would imagine more often than you think there is not a way that is done. Maybe yeah. there should be, but there, there isn't necessarily. Mm -hmm. So people are often called upon as leaders to make something up. And that requires being deeply thoughtful about like, well, who has to be involved in this? Because now you've got a blank slate. What is the best possible path forward um, is a really challenging question because mm -hmm. you don't want to get it wrong when you have the mm -hmm. chance to make it up for the first time. Yes. So one thing is people are making a lot of it up and that's really challenging. The second thing is um, when you have this chance to work with a blank slate, how do you, again, going back to the listen, not just bring your expertise, how do you broaden the table of who gets to be part of a process, mm -hmm. especially when it's something as important as public education? Mm -hmm. So when we designed the system for social studies standards and we said, well, okay, there's really no way that standards are updated. I said, well, how do we get as many teachers at the table as possible? And the other ones responsible for, for, mm -hmm. for teaching it, the old standards had a lot of teachers in the back as co-authors. How do we make this happen? And how do we make it happen so that they're not just invited to the table once? Yeah. They're yeah. not just invited to write the standards and then the board adopts them. But we had, so we created a process essentially that invited in advisors at the beginning to advise the state board that then handed a series of guiding principles that the advisors wrote to the state education agency. The state education agency got a bunch of teachers together to write the standards. And we're about to get that draft out to the public next month. So oh, wow. It was a profound moment of like, I can't believe that no one has done this and there's no system. Also, oh my gosh, how do we design something that brings the most people to the table? But now to watch it happen, it's very cool to say like, this thing didn't exist two and a half years ago mm -hmm. and now it's going to be reality. And we have students on our board who have always been part of our board meetings, board discussions, and they run their own committee, a student advisory committee. Mm -hmm. This year, for the first time, we have invited students to join our standing committees so they can join the committees that oh, nice. the yeah, yeah. members are part of, and they can vote in those committees. And that means they also have responsibilities. So one of our student reps is working on codifying the process, not just for writing the social studies standards, but what would it look like to redo any set of state standards in D.C.? Wow. And... How do we make sure that we're checking up on them afterwards? Like, what's the impact on students? How are teachers feeling about the standards? What supports have been provided? What supports are needed? Um, so super, super profound moment of, oh my gosh, people make a lot of stuff up. And yeah. wow, it's really challenging. But also when you, when you see a system come all the way through, what an enormous honor it is to get to sort of create such a process um, and to welcome people to the table who you want and think need to be there.
Right. The blank slate is both really intimidating and like mind blowing how often it is a blank slate, but then also such an opportunity. Right. And so how does that, you know, move forward? Yeah. Um, I'm so excited to see those social studies standards next month. I feel like I'm going to be all tuning in now. I mean, I, I, at my core, I'm a geeky teacher and I, I really always say I'm a reading teacher, but I was a history teacher um, for a couple of years. So, you know, and, yeah. and I think also when we think it's, it's just so interesting too, right? Because when we think about like what really excites, like there's so much potential in social studies about like you can help make the world more like you think it should be. And so how do you connect those dots for kids with like very recent and relevant examples so that they can move forward and I don't know, work on climate change, <laughs> like make it, make voting easier and like all the things that need to happen. So totally. And, you know, one of the key things we put in our standards, which I'm super proud of, and I'm, I'm really glad that. Uh, the folks who came to the table to advise us and to write this owned this and took it to heart is we wanted our standards to be windows and mirrors for our students to be yes. reflective both of seeing themselves present in what mm -hmm. we teach, but also having opportunities to see outside themselves into that which they may not have reflected in their own schools or in their own communities. And how does that taking that challenge open opportunities for each of the standards? How do we represent mm -hmm. LGBTQ history in our standards better? How do we talk about um, Black history and Black leadership, not just as part of February, and right. also not just as trauma, but how do we talk about the power of Black leadership, especially in our own district in DC, um, and how many Black leaders have really, you know, built our city into what it is, mm -hmm. hopefully mm -hmm. soon a state. But I'll put my two cents in there for that. Definitely. Well, speaking of, I think I often experience the concept of windows and mirrors through a DEI lens, right? And in diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice work. And so, you know, we both care a lot about equity and justice, and we've seen the world move quite a bit since 2006 in some ways. Some, and I didn't say in which direction, because it has been in both. Um, but, you know, what are you thinking about now when it comes to DEI work? What, you know, what are you proud of having done? What are you thinking about doing next um, to really move the needle towards a more equitable and just world? Yeah. So in the different seats I have, right? So my students in my graduate school classes are um, literally all over the country. Um, and they come from a wide variety of backgrounds, both race, class, socioeconomic, um, ethnicity, so part of it is talking with them, frankly, about mm. the role white supremacy has played in education policy and how that continues to play out today mm -hmm. and what kind of policy changes need to happen to make real, lasting, sustainable, uh, systemic change. So we were talking last night about teachers, and we note that the majority of teachers in America are white. That is not the majority of our student population yeah. anymore. So how are we thinking about, okay, what are we doing to diversify the teaching workforce? But if decisions are not always made at the teacher level, but instead are made at the school leader level or the superintendent level or the school board level, what are we doing to change the people who are sitting in the seats of power mm -hmm. throughout? So have any of them thought about running for their own school board? Have mm -hmm. any of them thought about uh, taking a path into system level leadership, not just building level leadership. And what would that take and how would they get there? So that's one path I think about is like, I have this seat as a professor to ask these mm -hmm. questions and to share opportunities, whether it's, you know, have you thought about this? Do you know about organizations that would support you if you thought about running for these roles? 
um, if this is something that speaks to you. So part of it mm -hmm. is like lighting little fires of have you ever thought about? Planting uh, seed, yep. <laughs> from, the, from the state board seat, um, there's a lot of opportunities. One is being cognizant of who you represent and whether who you represent is always present in who comes to speak to you about their issues. So Ward 6, which I represent in DC, um, was just downsized during redistricting because we had grown to be so enormous. Mm -hmm. We had about 20,000 too many voters in Ward 6 and we had to redistribute. But one of the things that was true there is if you looked at the diversity of Ward 6 and you looked at who showed up to testify at public meetings for Ward 6, if you looked at my email inbox and you compared that to the broad diversity of constituents in Ward 6, there was a disconnect. Mm -hmm. So in my elected seat, how am I being cognizant of trying to represent the interests of all my constituents, not just the ones who reach out to me? Mm -hmm. So how am I going into communities and asking questions to make sure that um, I'm not just getting parents who sit in front of a computer all day as part of their job and can fire off an email when there's an issue, but how do you get down to actually talk with community members and make sure that interests are being represented? Mm -hmm. um, Ward 6 diversity is mostly black and white. Um, it is affluent and low income. We have big housing projects that house a lot of children, a lot of seniors. Um, and they are often not represented in my inbox. They are not the folks who always show up to testify at public meetings, um, but they are a substantial part of the ward mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. So that's a sec that's another way. And then I think finally, for me, a lot of it is listening to our students. Mm -hmm. We have four student representatives on our board who attend four different high schools, two at public charter schools, two at traditional district schools. Um, they are incredibly eloquent young women who mm. frankly could run the whole board. Mm -hmm. um, they probably could run much of the city. They're really spectacular young women. Uh, part of it is listening to them. What mm -hmm. did they and their fellow students see and want in the world? And so how mm -hmm. are we empowering their voice? How are we amplifying their voices as students? Knowing that uh, not only do they make up the population of who we're actually trying to serve from a board of education, um, but they represent much greater diversity in backgrounds and experience frankly, than even do the members of the board mm -hmm. who were elected mm -hmm. as adults. Um, so those are some ways, you know, that I'm trying to do that. I think from a consulting landscape, some of it is cognizance that white women hold a lot of leadership seats in education. Um, and it, it may be really important for folks like me um, to step back and mm -hmm. to say, how do I lead and support leaders of color from mm -hmm. behind the scenes? How do I provide that support um, rather than seeking to be in the front myself. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing I'm still wrestling with, right? Is like, I like leading. I like the chance to do big, important work in education. But how do I also think about what are the ways I can do that important work? Do I need to be the front player in that? Are there ways I can support voices and leaders that have not been um, advanced previously um, mm -hmm. And I don't have answers to that yet. That's, that is very much on my mind at the moment. Yes. I think that um, it's so interesting because this is bringing to mind my children's school just announced their advisory committee makeup structure. And I have a lot of thoughts on that. And so how do I, you know, it's interesting, like, how do you use your voice and your identity, which often is so defaulted to you to help make sure that more voices are heard. So. Uh-oh. Did we freeze? Is this not? Please do not let this be the first ever freezing of Alive on Leadership. Oh, boy. Let's see how this goes. 
Wait for a second. I'm seeing by Jess's face. This is not looking like she could really hold that face for so long. Let me see if I refresh. What will happen? Oh boy, another first. Let us see. Um, I'm not sure reloading is the best idea. Okay. Let's see. Hmm. All right. It looks like Jess got disconnected and will rejoin us. So hopefully if you're watching along or listening, um, this is giving you some good food for thought to chew on and some good time to chew on this food for thought as we wait for this technical challenge. It has been, I think this is my fifth live, sixth. Um, I have a few surprises in store, so more than you've been watching along for. And one of the things uh, we have not yet had is this level of tech piece, but I have been waiting for it because as folks know, um, who have met with me or work with me at home, this is um, not atypical for my connectivity, especially midday. Um, so Jess just texted me, her computer went black, uh, never a good sign, and she is logging back in now. So stay tuned. And um, I am really excited because the next thing that we'll be digging into is our focus area with Jess, which is making change at all levels of policy. So, you know, as Jessica has talked about, she has her role as the president of the State Board of Education in D.C. She also has her consulting work. Um, and so where she's working often with foundations or different organizations, policy groups, et cetera, to add some extra capacity um, and some external perspective and expertise. And then she also has uh, her work as a professor. And so working with um, uh, students who, teachers, recent teachers who are interested in this. So Jess, welcome back. That was our first tech difficulty, but it looks like we made it through. <laughs> There's never a dull moment in this era of virtual experiences. Zooming this. This is only a matter of time. So here we go. It, you know, that that's how it works. So I was able, luckily, as a longtime middle school teacher, I perhaps know just how to pontificate if I need to. And so I was able to fill folks in on the three different layers. You know, we've talked about, you know, your consulting work, your professor professorial work, and then your work as president of the state board. And so we're going to dig into our next piece, which is policy change at all different levels. So, but kind of before we go into the meat of this topic, like how are you toggling between these like every day? Because it's interesting you mentioned when you were talking about your process, right, of running for the board. I mean, the president of the state board of education, I have to think is, not it is not literally a full-time job but it certainly has the impact of a full-time job on your day-to-day -day life i would imagine um but tell me if i'm wrong about that so how do you do this do you not get like a little vertigo like what is this about yeah it it, it is a little vertigo i will say <laughs> there's a couple of a couple of ways i do it one is i try not to be more than two roles on any given day okay so if i can help it um i try to make tuesdays and thursdays consulting only work Right now I teach on Tuesday nights. So Tuesdays I am both consultant Jess and professor Jess, but I try not to be state board Jess if I can help it on Tuesdays. On Thursdays, I try to be only consultant Jess. On Wednesdays, and if you were to email me today at my consultant's email, you'd get a nice out of office that notes that on Wednesdays, I primarily focus on my role as Ward 6 representative on the DC State Board of Education. Here's my cell phone number if you really need me in an emergency. But I try to make Wednesdays state board only and I've communicated that to both my colleagues, my staff, and my constituents. Like, if you want to get a hold of me, Wednesday's a great day because I will only focus on this on Wednesdays. 
Um, part of that is our state board meetings are on every other Wednesday night. So it lets me keep my life a little aligned. Part of it too is that Wednesdays tend to be a little quieter. People mm-hmm. tend to, to use Wednesdays, I find in education, often to like dig in deep on work and not have as many meetings. So Wednesdays are state board only. And then Mondays and Fridays flex. Um, they spend a little time doing whatever needs to be done that week. So that's part of it. But I think the other piece of it is trying as much as possible to find alignments between them. So Mm -hmm. how do I make sure that when I'm talking with my graduate students, that if we've got something going on at the state board that is aligned to a topic that we're talking about, that we can combine efforts. So I told them that when the social studies standards come out, I'm going to invite them to that public meeting so that they can listen in on the discussion, chime in with their own public comments if they want, but also watch the process of policy unfold um, in real time. Mm -hmm. Uh, With consulting work, it's a little different because I don't do work um, in D.C. as much as I did prior to serving on the board, partly for real conflict of interest and more so for uh, perceived conflict of interest. Um, But all the work that I'm doing on strategy planning with other schools in other states or their um, organizations in other states still helps me think through the way we're doing things um, on the board, whether Mm -hmm. it's... um, a work plan. So when I when I when we did the creation of like how we'll do the social study standards, I used my work plan that I use with clients and I said, okay, here's how we want to do it. That that had been a helpful addition to the work of the social studies uh, planning on the state board. It's now trickled down. It's a work plan template that all of our committees use. Um, so I try to find some um, synergies between the work to make sure that my head isn't going in so many directions on a given day. Yes. Um, but oftentimes it's also taking a 15 minute walk between wearing my different hats so I can physically change from, you know, consultant Jess to Professor Jess. Right, right. Let me like mentally, you know, like Bruce Wayne went into the Batcave, right? <laughs> he needed yes. that elevator ride to become Batman. It's like <laughs> went for a walk for doing that. Um, well, and it's funny because we originally had talked about doing this on Thursdays, like I had been doing, but you had to testify before the DC City Council, which is the first response I've gotten. So I imagine that sometimes the school board job just demands what it demands. I'm, I'm assuming it's in that capacity. It's not. Uh... It, it is. It is in the board capacity. Uh, we have our performance oversight hearing with the DC Council. So when we talk about levels of, of policy, um, The state board is an independent government agency. So we're elected by the people and we function separate from the executive branch or the legislative branch of government. However, the council still has oversight of us for performance purposes. So we have to submit answers to a list of questions. We have to testify on the work our agency has done in the prior fiscal year. And conveniently, the performance oversight hearing is three weeks before the budget hearing. So that basically (laughs) you talk about all the great things you've done and make the case for the council to give you the money that you need to do the work of the year ahead. Got it. That is awesome. Well, we will be sending good vibes tomorrow when that happens and should not be hard talking about these accomplishments. So, you know, when you think about this policy change at all level and kind of making effective policy change, you know, what are the what are the must-haves, what are the nice-to-haves? And is it different if you're thinking about changing a policy in your building as a school leader or in your district, whether it's you know, as big as, you know, LA Unified or, you know, small town USA, you know, and then when you're thinking at a larger level, you think at all these different levels, are the nice to haves and must haves the same or are they different? It's a great question. I think the thing that I think is the same, no matter the level, whether we're talking at the school level, the district, a state or the US Secretary of Education is 
how does this policy change affect kids? Mm -hmm. Even if the change is not about kids, right? So maybe this is a, a change about teacher labor relations, or maybe this is a change about uh, funding for facilities, or maybe this is a change about licensing regulations. If it's in education, I think the quintessential question has to be, how does this policy improve something for mm -hmm. young people? Mm -hmm. And that to me is, is true at all those levels. And if the answer is, I don't know, well, then we have to get to how does it like, but right. let's find out before we make a decision, because the answer should be, it is going to improve something for children, whether it's because it improves teacher working conditions, students will have teachers who are more likely to be retained year over year, or students will have teachers who have adequate time for planning, really robust learning experiences for students. So I think that's the thing that is not different at any of the levels. I think the other thing that is not different is how you communicate the intent of the policy and its implementation mm. to a broad audience. Um, one of the trickiest things I think in policy is policy is often complex and wonky and way more in the weeds than most of your audience wants to care about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if you overly simplify what a policy change is going to do and you lose the meaning of it, then people start to believe that your communication about the policy is disingenuous. Right? You have Obamacare. Obamacare comes to mind. Ob I love President Obama, but if you like your doctor, you can keep him. Really came to bite him in the butt. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, like, don't oversimplify. People find out, like, oh, but not, but not so much. Then it feels disingenuous and they feel like you tried to pull the wool over their eyes. So, yeah. how do we communicate policy in such a way that? We don't expect everyone to be as in the weeds as the folks creating the policy are, but that we don't oversimplify. And the other thing is, how can we explain it in such a way that does not appear to pander or to talk down to people, mm. even if we have to simplify terms? The example I always use when I'm talking about this is my mom is a nurse who raised two ch children and put them through school. So my mom knows about school, both having gone to school and having raised kids in school, but school is not her thing. Mm -hmm. That said, she cares about the issue and wants to know about it. So when I try to think about how I explain a policy, I try to think about how I explain it to my mom. Mm -hmm. I respect my mom. I want her to be spoken to in a way that communicates that respect. But as a nurse, I'm not expecting that she understands the difference between Title I formula funds versus Title I school-based models. Mm -hmm. I need to get clear on like, there is funding that is going to help students who are low income, whether it's helping a small number of them in a school or it's helping the whole school because the school serves so many kids who fill who fit that mm -hmm. category. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another thing that's important at all levels is how you communicate. What I think is different and the thing that is always on my mind, Beth, is this question of breadth versus depth. Mm. If I am the leader of a school or I am the leader of a school district, I can make really deep and lasting change that mm -hmm. will affect kids and families in ways that they can point back and say, Superintendent Napleton did that. Mm -hmm, Principal mm -hmm. did that. They can point back and attribute it and that impact will be felt for a long time. Mm -hmm. So when you're making change at that more local level, how are you taking advantage of that ability to go deep and make that deep and lasting change that is palpable for folks in the system? Mm -hmm. um, in an annoying fashion, I always thought when I got into policy, I would be able to do more. Turns mm -hmm. out I can't necessarily do more. 
you can do broader things. Mm. So if you're on the state board of education, you can change the social studies standards. Don't get me wrong. That's a big deal, but I can't, I'm not going to teach those social studies standards to kids. I'm changing the standards, enabling conditions mm-hmm. that provide teachers and students with information on broader content knowledge, broader sets of skills than they had before. But I will have no connection to what actually happens with those standards, for better mm-hmm. or for worse. I wish I wish I could. I right, like right. teaching the standards into classrooms and do it. It's not to like these super engaging experiences, and kids were transformed, amazing. But like it's right, like you're you're limited in your reach. And I That's think right. this breath versus depth is a really good way to think about it because I know that I used to talk a lot of junk, you know. But well, if I were the superintendent of New York schools, I would. But you're limited. You just you're limited. Limitless. There's always limitations. Yeah. And because you have this breath opportunity, you should not waste it, right? You right. should make big scale change that has a lasting impact, but also be cognizant that you can't control the implementation of it when you've stepped up to the state level, when you've stepped up to the national level. Um, you can write the policy really thoughtfully to try to better mm-hmm. guide the implementation. But because you're now up here making broad change, you have to give up a certain amount of control about the depth of it, about the, the way it's implemented. Um, I say that because I think that's the biggest tension in policy change, which is if you get to a place in a role where you're, say, at a think tank, I talk about this with the graduate students, think tanks are great, right? They get to do research, they get to publish, they get to share those ideas with policymakers who can then make change. But you don't actually get to be in the front lines doing the work. And if you've been a teacher, if you've been in a classroom, if you've been an administrator, if you've been running a building... It is tempting to think when I get there and I have all this space and time to think, I can really make it happen. Like, no, no. Now you can talk about what you want to happen, but you don't get to make it happen anymore. So Mm -hmm. I think that tension um, is very much at the forefront for me about what is different about policy Mm -hmm. change from local to district to state and above. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you are thinking and you encounter leaders, and, and, and this answer might be different depending on the type of leader you encounter and at what level, like you just mentioned, you know, if they were thinking about making a policy change, you know, what advice would you give them? Yeah. So I think, I think for school and district level leaders, I think the the advice I would give in either of those places is your power over a set of students that you know so well is valuable. Mm-hmm. Don't trade that. Don't trade mm-hmm. that away by saying like, Okay, what are the best practices out in the field? Like, you know, these students, you know, these families, you know, these educators Mm -hmm. make the change that is right for this context, Mm -hmm. even if it might not fit exactly the best practice that you've read about here or there or the other place. Um, I think we get in policy land a little trapped in the world of like best practices. What does the research say? Like, the research is never going to tell you, the building leader, what yes. is right for your students. So how are you taking that that opportunity you have and making the choice that is right for the students and families you know best in front of you? Mm-hmm. That's the advice I think I would give there. From the, um, the, the larger levels, right, if I'm talking to fellow state board members or I'm t- talking to the, the state, the uh, secretary of education, I think my advice is, how are you listening to what the ground is saying to you? So how are you Mm -hmm. listening to your constituents? How are you listening to uh, your stakeholders? And how does that translate up into the enormous opportunity you have to make this broad change? Um, Because I think the temptation at the 
higher levels of change, right, at this state level or this national level, um, is to say, well, what's going to either what does the research evidence point us to or what do I think from my past experiences? Mm -hmm. How are you still making sure that you're connected to those school building leaders, to those district level leaders, um, and not losing sight of that just because you've stepped up into this broader opportunity for change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Um, and I think especially that piece of like, you know, I would imagine that if you were the state superintendent, it's like, well, here's what I know and what I want to be true. But like, does it actually match the students that you're serving and the families that you're serving in the moment that we're in in the world right now? Right. I mean, certainly even the last few years have been, you know, there's, a lot is different than it was two years ago at this time. <laughs> a lot. Right? So let's acknowledge that. What does that mean for the lived experiences of our folks? That is amazing. Um, well, I think it is just so important. And I think that, you know, when this is really good food for thought, I think for folks out there, because I know it can also be hard to think, you know, sometimes as a leader, there's so much I want to do, right? And then that can be overwhelming, or what do I think about, or what goes first, or so I think this idea of depth versus breath, and I think the ideas that you floated have been really helpful. So I appreciate yeah. that. But, you know, the other thing I'd say, Beth, to your point about like, what do I do first and what do I do second? I mm -hmm. do think that there's an important thing for, for leaders at any level and for policy change at any level to think about um, the stepping stones or the dominoes, right? Like mm -hmm. if I do, if I want to get here, what stepping stones need to be built to help me get there? So maybe this is the ultimate policy goal. But I can't necessarily do that without building some other things along the way first. Yes, um, yes. And that that's somewhat sequencing. But then I think there's also the domino effect, which is like, if I make that change, what else happens as a result? And how am I accounting for that from the beginning? Like, how am I thinking it all the way through to the end before I take an action? Um, my, my students had the chance to hear from a, a school funding expert um, the other day, Rebecca Sibilia, who used to be the CEO at EdBuild, mm. um, came and spoke with them about the work EdBuild had done to research more equitable ways of designing American education funding, right? We've got this property tax-based system, which isn't equitable at all. Mm. So how do we think about that? And as she talked through some of it, the student's big takeaway was like, oh my gosh, but so much else has to change. Mm. Yes. In order to get that, these things have to change. But also when that happens, here are all the other things that will change as a result. And thinking in that way, I don't think comes naturally to all leaders, nor does it always feel like there's time for that. But I think mm -hmm. it's a valuable thing to take time to do anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. I love that domino piece because I think that all of us have had, here's what I expected to change. And then what, what happened that I didn't realize. And sometimes it's because you didn't think about it. And sometimes it's because it was a black swan type of thing and you know, whatever it was, but how do you then think about how that will impact the, you know, future reality in which you lead. So yeah. All right. Well, let's go to the lightning round of recommendations. Always a favorite um, because I get to learn about really cool stuff as well. So I would love to start as that former reading teacher, uh, humanities, let's say, for purposes of this conversation, what is a book that's meant a lot professionally that you'd recommend to our viewers and listeners? Yeah, it's nothing about education. Um, right. The most powerful book, two, two powerful books I read um, that have formed my thinking. One is Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, mm. specifically the notion of getting proximate um, and recognizing that when we stand at a distance, we see only bits and pieces of an issue. And when we get proximate, we see things very differently. Um, and we are changed by that which we have gotten close to. And so when he writes about this with incarceration and the death penalty, um, the power of that 
seeps into the way I think about a lot of other things when you think about getting getting proximate. Um, the other book is Evicted, mm. um, specifically thinking about what we don't always pay attention to in education, which is all the connections of other systems and how something, I had a conversation with a neighbor today about the fact that um, a rec center in our community was not able to offer programming last week during a winter break because the coach who offered the most programming had been affected by a shooting. He had lost his mm -hmm. sister and was managing his own trauma and his own family. The domino effects of all the things that happen in interconnected communities, evicted gets so much at like how the eviction crisis affects all the other aspects of people's lives when their housing is unstable and how that affects children in schools is mm -hmm. very much on my mind. Um, so those are two things that are not education books that nonetheless have been profound for me in thinking about systems um, in and around education and how we operate in them. Well, and I think, I don't know if this is true for you, but I think that, you know, in the first half of my career when we met, it was like education, this is the thing we can solve. And then the older I get, the more I see the interconnectedness of this. And it's like, of course, if you don't know where you're going home to at night after school or where your stuff is or what, like, of course you cannot be as successful in school, right? Or of course you're distracted or of course, like all things are connected, right? The food deserts, like all of these components. Um, and so I think it is I'm excited. I, Just Mercy, I loved, and I don't know. Have you ever been to Montgomery, the Equal Justice Institute down there? Yet. At some of them, that's a that's a. If you if you're in the neighborhood, it's a must stop by. In my neighborhood, I mean, like state of Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth a couple hour drive, but I am excited to pick up Evicted because that sounds like it's my jam. Now, I I am a reading teacher, but I do understand people learn in other ways besides books. Uh, and so, is there another resource that's been impactful for you that you would recommend, like a podcast or newsletters? resources? Yeah. So um, the, the first is more reading. Actually, I am a daily subscriber to the Washington Post and I will mm. tout every day that like getting a paper paper um, is also a helpful grounding for me. Mm. I spend a lot of time on the computer all day, but to actually go down to my door, pick up my paper, read my local news section, but also the, the commentary on the world, the news of the world on a paper is yeah. super impactful. Um, and recognizing the connection between quality journalism and policy systems, right? Mm. You can't really have one without the other. Um, so that's the second resource. The other one is I listened to the podcast Night with White Parents mm. at the start of the pandemic. And it, um, it was particularly powerful given the dynamics within the ward I represent. We have a lot of families who are very committed to public schools and neighborhood public schools. Um, many of those families are white. And when they talk about it, it is discussed in a particular fashion um, that may be different than families who've been in D.C. for generations talk about their connection to neighborhood schools. Um, and listening to this, which takes place in New York, was helpful because it was enough, like what, what I was experiencing locally, mm -hmm. but removed enough to give me some distance to really think about the dynamics, think about the politics of it, um, and contemplate. The last thing I'll say is Adam Grant, his, um, his work podcast, I find super helpful. He thinks about work in such interesting ways um, and he talks to great people. I just listened to his podcast with Lin-Manuel Miranda and his father, mm -hmm. Luis, talking about their different approaches to work. Fascinating, hilarious, and plenty of, um, this was right after In the Heights came out. So there's no Encanto in it, but there's an awful lot of Benny and uh, and some of the other In the Heights. Wow. wow, that's so cool. Well, uh, Nice White Parents was I, I don't know if mesmerizing is the right word for a podcast, but audibly mesmerizing. Um, and so I think I'm excited to check out the other ones as well. I feel like uh, 
And also my daughter is a huge Encanto fan. So I'm like, oh, would she even like that? <laughs> Maybe not if it's not mentioned. She finally, the other day was like, oh, the reason you like Hamilton and Encanto is it's the same composer. <laughs> so this is great. Now, you know, you like limit, like let's open up, you know, let's go see In the Heights. <laughs> oh, and In the Heights is so good. It's so, I taught in Washington Heights. That's where I started my career. My oh, I love it. Teaching. Yeah, it was pretty great. So. I love it. Um, how about, let's talk about mentors. So who are some mentors, you know, personally who've meant a lot to you? Um, so Joanne Weiss and I have gotten to work together on some projects and she had, uh, you know, she'd been the chief of staff to Arnie Duncan when he was at the U S department of ed and had a real hand in a lot of the work that happened during that era of the Obama administration. So learning from her and her work as a leader and her mm. experience, um, in multiple facets of education has been incredibly powerful. Um, when I was in college, I worked in a service learning office on campus, and there was a woman named Susan Burton, who was my boss and professor at the time. Um, we have now run into each other here in D.C. in very different careers, but <laughs> Susan's commitment to justice um, and her approach to sort of both racial and economic justice that I started like learning from her feet at, mm. at, at 20 and 21 um, is powerful 20 plus years later. So those are two women who come to mind. I'll say the other thing is the the teachers I worked with at KIPP. Um, mm. I started at KIPP LA Prep and I think about the teachers I worked with and learned from there. And then the teachers I got to work with and learn from at KIPP DC and the KIPP uh, schools all around the country. Um, my relationships with those folks who are often, more often than not, not in a classroom anymore, mm -hmm. um, but both at the time and now have been incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do feel like it's one of the side benefits, and I don't, maybe this is true in other fields, but in education, you meet really great people. Um, and they're really great people if you meet them when you're 20 and in, in the service learning office, or when you're 25 and teaching or 30. Um, and that I feel like the older I get, the more it, you know, really is like, this is important. Um, that's important. How about um, mentors you know from afar? So you know my love of Bruce Springsteen. I feel like that was just beginning in the writing project days. <laughs> I have learned a lot about leadership from Bruce Springsteen. Who have you learned a lot about leadership from? <laughs> oh my gosh. So I had such a hard time with this question because I was thinking about that like, well, who would I put in that bucket that I'm learning from from afar? Um, I don't have a good answer to this, but now that you've said Springsteen, I'm going to have to think about some of my like musical influences. I will say, and it's a little bit of a cop-out, but you mentioned my triathlon thing. So I found sports late in life. I started running at 30. I started triathlon at 35. I'm going to be 45 this year. And I've done two Ironmans and a whole bunch of other long distance sports. I learn a lot from the running community and the mm -hmm. endurance sport community about what it is to commit to a hugely audacious goal and to build the steps in to get there. And to build the discipline to get to that. So like mm -hmm. I listened to Shalane Flanagan talk a lot about her training. And um, if you're not into running, Shalane Flanagan, you know, U.S. Olympian, New York City Marathon winner, talked about the sh they talk about the Shalane effect. That basically mm -hmm. as she succeeded, she brought all these people along with her. Mm -hmm. So I find that stuff super powerful. Thinking about the way that thinking about sport and endurance influences professional life, personal life, commitment to goals and building the blocks to get there. Definitely. Definitely. That's a great one. And as someone who also found athleticism later in life, <laughs> I didn't even know it was possible. So if you're listening to like, that's not me, you never know. Um, and it's always so amazingly analogous. Like I feel like there's nothing like a great sports metaphor as well. Um, and then lastly, before we wrap up, what's something you're loving in your life right now? 
So I have a rescue dog I've been fostering um, for the past month, and I will I will declare it here uh, that Ooh. Gus is officially as of uh, today my dog. Uh, oh so yay! Gus is a rescue dog uh, named Gus, and he is just a joy because he's a eighty pounds of love um, <laughs> who is currently sunning himself here on my couch. There you go. Who does not need 80 pounds of love in their life? <laughs> he doesn't ask for much except treats. He likes treats a lot. You know, we need more, you know, spirits in the world that that's all they need is some treats, right? And, and love. Absolutely. I am so glad because I've, you know, watched you in your journey. Like, this is not your first dog and, you yeah. know, all of that. So it's it's just nice to have that and have it be official. Yeah. He's a super cutie. It's official. I mean, not that the looks is everything, but also his personality. <laughs> so that's he kind of looks like Scooby-Doo. I mean, he really does. He's got this big old head and he's the same color and he wears a blue collar. So does that mean you'll be like Velma for Halloween? You I am like going to be Velma for Halloween. And I've convinced my partner, Jason, that he ought to be shaggy. So we're going to have a lot of fun. You've got, you've got months to prepare, but it's never too early to start. I think we all know that. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Jess, thank you so much um, for coming today and talking with us and sharing your experiences. It has been super, super interesting and profound. And I'm going to put up on here uh, Jessica's Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow her. And it's at Jessica Sutter, S-U-T-T-E-R-W-6. And so if you were interested in those gems today um, and want to kind of learn more, if you, like me, are now really ready to start getting ready for the D.C. Social Standards, Social Studies Standards Unveiling, and all that excitement, that's a great place to find out. Um, and if you were listening today and enjoy kind of thinking about leadership in those pieces, you can check out my website, follow me on Instagram or Facebook, or follow me on LinkedIn, and those links are on all bios. And if you're thinking, oh my gosh, like, I am one of those leaders facing that blank page of systems, and I'm like, how do I do this, <laughs> right? And you need some help. If you are like, I need to make some deep changes in my school or district, right? Book a call with me. The link is on the screen, bethnableton.com. Um, backslash book hyphen a hyphen call. And of course, it's also on my website, bethnapleton.com. And we can talk about the possibility of partnering today. So in the meantime, I'm so glad we have people fighting the good fight at all levels who can sit at the, you know, head of the DC board, state board of education, and also bring upon their relevant uh, history and teaching experience in multiple places. So it was a pleasure, Jessica. And I'm so glad we got to reconnect yeah. here. Thanks for having me, Beth, and for rolling with the punches of the technological difficulties. Hey, it's a first time for everything, and we always learn, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, right, Beth. Take care. Bye. All right.